can sing, faith is the victory. Who provides that victory? And what does that mean for us? You know, as we've been looking at the history of the Protestant Reformation and looking at some basic tenets of the Christian faith, the Orthodox Christian faith, we see the great importance historically in the church of what happened 500 years ago this month. So I've been sharing the story of Martin Luther. I've been talking about uh, how God was getting a hold of his heart, this young Catholic monk who had always just wanted to be a lawyer and his dad wanted him to be a lawyer. But one day God got a hold of his heart and he made a promise. And he kept that promise and he joined the church, the only church at that time, the Roman Catholic Church, And he joined with eagerness and sincerity to truly be the best monk that he could possibly be. But it was during that time, even just the first five years of of being a teacher of theology and being in um, in the Catholic Church as a leader, that that what happened to him was he started to grapple with certain scriptures. See, and as he was reading the scriptures and wanting to teach them, God was doing a work in his mind and in his heart. And so the story goes that after being um, in the church for about five years, he wanted to make a pilgrimage to Rome. Now that was something that every person wanted to do, especially all of the priests and the leaders in the Catholic Church of that day. And, and you know, how did they get there? They walked, especially what the monks would do. They would go in twos and they would walk silently on a pilgrimage for days, sometimes weeks, to get to Rome. Because at the time that was the really the capital of the world and it was the place they needed to go. Spiritually, they needed to really go there. And so Martin Luther set out on this journey to go to the great city of Rome. But he went there hoping and praying the whole time he was walking that God would bless his good works, that God would allow absolution from sin, the sins that he was committing, going to commit, and even the sins of his relatives passed on and alive. See, because that was a teaching of the Catholic Church at the time, of the church. But when he got there, something amazing happened. He got there and he was following all these other pilgrims to the great city. And he got to this set of stairs. And these stairs are still there today. And and Catholic um, people from all around the world will come and do this. And they would climb the stairs, usually on their knees, one stair at a time, praying. Praying on each step, usually for dead relatives, praying for their salvation, that God would release them from purgatory. And you see, what was happening at the time, what really got Luther's attention is that the church at the time was um, selling indulgences, is what they call it. Basically, it was like, if you gave money, the church would guarantee your promise that your sins would be forgiven in purgatory and that your dead relatives also, that they would sort of get at a get out of um, jail free card, so to speak, you know, to put it in sort of layman's terms. And so he went and he started to climb these stairs with all the other pilgrims. And these were the stairs that reportedly throughout the history of the church had said, these were the stairs that the Lord Jesus himself climbed to go meet with Pontius Pilate. And so they would climb these stairs. But as he was doing that, 
God was getting a hold of his heart and he would look around and something didn't seem right. And it was that pilgrimage to Rome that really set in motion what happened next. And when he got back, he started even more so to wrestle with God. God, what does it mean? He would say that you are righteous and I am a wretched sinner. And how, how can I be made righteous? How can I be reconnected to a God who is so holy and perfect and righteous? And he tried as hard as he could to earn God's favor. As I mentioned last week, he basically said that he was the best monk there could be. He said he was the greatest at monkery that there could ever be. And that was his goal. But God started to change his mind as he poured over the scriptures one by one. One by one. When he was there, he visited all kinds of shrines and visited different things that all pilgrims would go to, and he would pray for the souls of his family and friends. But as he made his way back, he started to reflect on how can he, how can he, a wretched sinner, please a holy and perfect God? And that really started to eat him up, as we would say. And He started to wrestle with God internally, and what God did was he led him to two verses in the first chapter of Romans, and that's really what we're going to look at this morning. You see, God used Martin Luther to really change the world as we know it. Now, there were others, even within the hundred years before Martin Luther, who were were in the church and who were believing that something was wrong with the church as it was. That they were teaching this idea of salvation was by faith in Jesus and his work on the cross, but also by the good works you could do and the prayers that you would pray and how much money you would give and adding so much to the gospel. But God, through Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, two brief verses, God really changed Martin Luther's heart and mind and then through him changed the world because Martin Luther was really the one after there had been those before him who was in the position to really stand up to the church leaders. And, you know, I think we all remember this, you know, that he didn't want to start a whole new church or denomination. He wanted to reform the church that he loved because he saw what was going on and they had totally gone astray from the truth of the gospel. He recognized what Paul taught in books like Galatians and Ephesians about what the true gospel is, but it wasn't until he really was pouring over Paul's great work, the book of Romans, about what it means to be saved. And so I just want to say that uh, before we get into Romans 1, 16 and 17, we first need to be reminded of what it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Because this really is, um, these are the key verses that show us what it truly means to be saved and what these five solas of the Reformation point out. That it is through sola scriptura, it is scripture alone, who is our ultimate authority. That it is by God's grace that we are saved, sola gratia. It is by faith Right? That we receive that grace, that free gift. That's what we're doing today, sola fide. 
It is then um, sola Christus, because it is in Christ alone, and then sola Dea Gloria, which means it is all for God's glory and His glory alone. But look at what it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Just look at that one more time, because it is not the result of works, right, so that no one should boast. For by grace... You have been saved. That is God's work of grace. But it is done through faith. That's the means. You see that? This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. And then it says, not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is why this is so important. Then we're going to really camp on Romans 1, 16 and 17. But why are these verses so important? Because when we say that we are celebrating the 500th year of, of the beginning of the, of the Protestant Reformation, here's what we can boil it down to, okay? It is answering this one simple question. How is a person saved? A very simple question, right? How is a person saved? What does it mean to be saved? Saved from what? And what does Jesus teach? And what do his apostles teach about the nature of salvation? That was the question at the heart of the Reformation. It was the question that was burning in Martin Luther's heart. How can I be reconciled to a righteous God? How, listen, how am I saved from wrath? How am I saved from his wrath? Right? That is the question. And so these verses answer that. It is by God's grace that you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. That it is a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one should boast, it says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But then we look at the passage, these two verses that God used to change Martin Luther's life and to really change the trajectory of the history of the church and the history of the known world at the time. Here's what it says in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It was these two verses that really got his attention. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse 17 brings it home. For in it, meaning the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, that's just a way of expressing it's all by faith. And then he quotes from the Old Testament in Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. What does that mean? That's what the simple question we're going to answer this morning. What does it mean the righteous shall live by faith? What does it mean when we say that God is righteous and we are not, but yet God's standard is perfection? God's righteous standard is what we have to meet. So how do we do that? As imperfect, wretched sinners, as Martin Luther would say, how do we bridge that great divide? There are many theologians who consider these two verses to be the most important in the whole letter 
of Romans and perhaps maybe in all of literature because of the foundation it, it, it provides and that it builds for the truth of the gospel. It is certainly the theme of Romans and it's the essence of Christianity. I had mentioned this last week, but this is so important. And perhaps, if nothing else you remember from this morning, let's remember this. That the fact that we say that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, that it is not of works, is what separates the true gospel, true Christianity, from every other world religion that ever has been, that is, or will be. Because in its essence, every other world philosophy or religion is truly about man trying to get back to God on his own terms, trying to please God through some system of good works, right? But what we believe is just the opposite. See, Jesus came and turned the world upside down, didn't he? And he said, here is the true gospel. It is by grace you have been saved. It is all a work of God, and we receive it as a free gift. How? Through faith. So that's what we're going to look at today. What does that mean? When it says in Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith, because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So we're just going to take a brief look at that this morning. So it was Martin Luther who was wrestling with that. And then finally, what he did on October 31st, the year 1517, 500 years ago, he went and he did what we call the nailing of the 95 Thesis to a door at the church in Wittenberg, Germany, where he was. Remember, he was a monk in the Catholic Church and a teacher, and he had come to the point where he could not any longer stand by while the church, again, the church that he served and loved, was doing things like selling indulgences, selling salvation, in essence. So he wrote out 95 declarations, questions, statements, things that needed to be addressed all in relation to this, what was happening in the Catholic Church. So he wrote them out, and he nailed them to that door. It was very common for leaders in the church, professors, to do that, right? To kind of put up a notice. And he did that, and then over the next couple of years, began to write, and he wrote, and he wrote, and he wrote. And finally, remember we talked about how all the leaders, listen, all the leaders of the church at that time, they called him to come to an assembly to take account for what he was writing and saying. And it was that famous, that famous scene where he got to that place and they said, Will you recant? Will you go back on what you are teaching and saying? And he in essence said, No, I cannot and I will not. Because of the Word of God and because his conscience, he could not go back on that. And he basically said, Here I stand. God help me. And that was it. Those famous words spoken. From that point, you know what he did? Right from there, he was a fugitive. He went and he went and he hid himself away in another town in Germany. And he began to interpret the New Testament into German. The language of the common people so that people could have the word of God themselves. It started truly not only the Reformation but a revolution. So simply we want to look at what do these verses tell us about the good news of the gospel that Martin Luther had missed for so long, but that God 
had revealed to him. So what he says is this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. This is what Paul is writing in Romans. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. See, it actually even starts with verse 15 before that. When he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you in Rome. Listen, that's what Paul is saying in the first chapter of Romans in his great letter to the Christians in Rome. He's saying, look, I'm eager to get there because I want to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And he says, and he says, this is why. And then we pick up in verse 16, because I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of what the truth of the gospel is. Well, why? Why is he not ashamed of it? And then he answers that question, because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who does what? For everyone who does a lot of good works? For everyone who says certain prayers? For everyone who gives the most money? For everyone who does simply what? Believes. Is that not an amazing word? Simply believes. It doesn't say that you would believe and then. It says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone, Jew and Greek, everyone who simply believes. So how is this gospel the power of God for salvation? It's because, and he goes on to explain it, in in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That, that's a, it's an interesting way that he words that he says, from faith to faith. Maybe your version says something a little different. It simply is an expression that means it's all about faith. It's centered on faith. Because what he's doing is he's quoting then from Habakkuk, where it says, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So what does that truly mean for us? When, he, when Paul was going there to preach this in Rome, is it interesting? It was in Rome that Martin Luther started to see what was truly going on in the church. And here was Paul writing a letter to who? To the people in Rome. He goes on to say that truly it is because the gospel is the power of God for salvation that we need to believe it and proclaim it. So the first idea is this. The gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, is the power of God for salvation to everyone. So the first thing to note is simply this. Salvation is the main need of every person, and no one is left out. Salvation simply means this, right? That because God is a righteous and holy and perfect God, right? And He condemns sin, and we are sinners salvation then refers to us being rescued because if you're saved from something doesn't it mean that you're rescued you're rescued from some kind of peril or danger right isn't that what it simply means so let's just remember the simplicity listen the simplicity of the words we use in sharing the gospel or understanding the gospel so we say being saved or salvation it means we are rescued from god's wrath and judgment which is real and we should never gloss over. You know, it's, it's unfortunate, but there are too many leaders in too many churches that are only teaching what I would call half the gospel. Which, as Paul says in Galatians and elsewhere, if it's half the gospel, it's not the true gospel. You remember we studied the whole book of Galatians and he was, he was just railing against the Judaizers, those who were believers but said you had to also become a Jew and you had to believe in salvation through faith, right? 
but also you had to then be circumcised and keep the law. And Paul said, that is not the gospel. He spent a whole letter talking about that. So we must not gloss over the fact that God is a just God. He calls out sin and he has to judge sin. So his wrath and judgment are what we deserve because of our sin. But yet he provides a way of being rescued from that. Right? It means being delivered from the penalty of sin when we say salvation. And that salvation happens at the moment we do what? Believe. It's what it says in these verses we're looking at. It is the power, salvation, right? For bring God's righteousness to us if we simply believe. Being delivered from the power of sin. Being delivered from the power of sin. Right? We recognize we need a Savior who was crucified for our sins, right? Because we all by nature are ungodly and we are under God's righteous wrath. See, that's not popular to preach, right? And that's kind of like makes us feel uncomfortable and like, why is he being so negative? Well, first of all, I'm not making this up, right? These are not my words, but this is what needs to be known and understood if you are to believe. Think about that. What does it simply mean to believe? It doesn't just mean, listen, an intellectual understanding. There's some things that happen when we believe. When he says that it is um, the power of God for salvation, the gospel is, to everyone who believes, what does that mean? Man, it's so crucial that we understand that one so important word. See, and Martin Luther began to understand that. What does it mean to believe? It means this. There's three things that have to happen when we believe. It's funny, I'm kind of just skipping right to the end of my message. And everybody's like, yeah, that's great. But I think this is where it hits home, right? Yeah, there was some other fluff in there. I don't need need to get to that. We need to be clear on several things here, right? Saving faith, when we say saving faith, or believing, right? Belief and faith, they go together. It's not just a general understanding of who he is, right? Or understanding the facts. Doesn't the scripture tell us that even the demons believe that? The demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God, right? They believe that truth. They believe what was happening. But of course, they're not saved. So here's what happens, very simply. When we say we believe in the Lord Jesus, you remember the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And the answer simply was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. What does the the, the most well-known verses of Scripture ever say in John 3, 16? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever, what? Believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That also gives us assurance, doesn't it? We should never then, from that moment of salvation, when we believe, never then doubt that we are saved. Never to doubt the assurance, that we can have assurance of our salvation. But here are the three things basically that happen when we believe. And we have to be careful. You know, I learn this more and more as I study the scriptures and as I learn and prepare to to bring a message on a Sunday that, It is so important, listen, that we understand the definition of words that we use. Words are powerful, aren't they? 
We're told elsewhere in Scripture that words can build up or they can tear down. We know, like if you're married, you know how important words are, right? And how sometimes it's really important not to say any words. That's, that could be very healthy for some of us, right? But words carry so much weight because, listen, they have meanings. And yes, over the years, the meanings of words change. So we have to be careful how we use words, especially when we're talking about the truth of the Scriptures, and especially even more so when we look at the nature of the Gospel. What does it mean when you go to share your faith with somebody? How do you do that? Just think about it. What words and phrases do you use? How do you share the gospel, the good news about what Jesus Christ did for us? Do you go right to the fact that, oh, just trust in Jesus and, and then you'll be saved? Well, great. Again, that's, that's the second half. I mean, that's the fun part, right? That's the second half of the message. But what are we being saved from, do you see? We need that whole true gospel. But here's what happens when we believe. First... With our minds, we understand the content of the gospel. We have first, it's an understanding, okay? It's a basic understanding who Jesus is, what his death on the cross means, and that he was raised from the dead. Remember the Apostle Paul says that in Corinthians and elsewhere? He says, if not for the resurrection, then there's, you might as well not even preach. You can all go home. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead bodily we believe right if he didn't if he didn't defeat death on that third day and rise from the dead then there is no true gospel so it's the understanding first right with our mind what the just the basic content of the gospel is we cannot understand the true gospel right and the need for a savior and salvation if we don't first know who jesus is because he is the one we believe is the savior the promised messiah And what he claimed, who he claimed to be, right? That he was truly God. That what he was going to do on our behalf, that he did death on the cross. And that he was raised from the dead as he promised he would be. So it's about first understanding the basic content of the gospel. But then there is that agreement, I would use that word, right? It's that heart response to that truth. We agree that it's true. See, it's one thing to acknowledge facts, but it's another thing to know that it's true, right? You can acknowledge facts about things, but not believe that it's true in its essence. Do you see what I mean? There is a very important distinction there. So first we understand the content of the gospel and who Jesus is and what he has done for us. But then we have a response to that and we agree with it. Yes, I agree with Jesus when he says that he is God himself. I agree with what Jesus said that what would happen on the cross did and what it did. And that he would be raised from the dead. I agree with that, right? But that agreement also causes our hearts to be sorrowful about our sin. But then we rejoice that through God's grace, salvation is a free gift. Remember? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of works. It's a gift. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 are so important. So first we understand it. We understand the facts. Then we acknowledge and agree with it. But then there is this essence of trusting it. Right? So it's understanding it, agreeing with it, and trusting it. Now listen. I don't use this word trust lightly. And this is why I say words, the definitions are so important. Some people can look at the idea of trusting in that as a work. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, 
that's why we have to do some add some works to it trust is not a work the way that the bible defines trust right the true meaning of the word trust is simply this that you put your full your full weight of understanding your full weight of belief your full weight of agreement on these things on him that you leave nothing for yourself it's like you know maybe you've done this when you were a kid or yeah camp or maybe even like you go with your company and you try to do some team building and you do what they call a trust fall right you ever do that you know and you just kind of put your back to somebody and they and the leader says okay just fall back and that person will catch you it's the simplest thing but it's kind of scary right why you have to trust that person behind you but what do you have to trust about them think about it you have to trust first of all they're paying attention first you have to trust that they care enough right you have to trust very good you have to trust that they're strong enough that they are capable and able so when we say that when we believe what's wrapped up in that word believe is that we understand the facts we agree that those facts are true but that we then put our full faith and trust in those facts. And the facts are that Jesus offers salvation for eternity. So we are trusting in Jesus Christ and His work on the cross for our eternal salvation. That is certainly a trust fall, isn't it? That's certainly putting the full weight of who you are on that, leaving nothing for yourself. That's why trust and nothing else can be a work that can be added to what it means to believe to salvation it is by grace alone through faith alone when we have that faith or that trust it means that we are 100 percent completely saying there's nothing we can do it's all been done for us and i am trusting in those facts see that so it's more than just a mental ascent of understanding the facts, but it's putting your trust in those facts for your eternal salvation. Now, it has been called by some people in Christianity, easy believism. Well, that's easy. There is nothing easy about trusting an invisible God that we cannot see with our eyes for our eternal salvation. Do you ever think about that? So simply, when it says... I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God, the gospel is, for salvation to everyone who believes, or John 3, 16, and many other passages in the New Testament that say it is who believes, right? That's what's wrapped up in that word, believe. When we do, we never come to a place where we can trust in our own good works as being sufficient or even contributing in any way to our salvation, right? So we know that the truth of the gospel reveals that we are sinners in need of a Savior, that God is righteous and we are not. That's what Martin Luther struggled with. But how do we bridge that gap? And here's how I end with this today. It is, as I've said many times, what we call that great exchange how martin luther asked do i get god's righteousness so i can meet listen his standard of perfection that's the truth all right that god is perfect and we're not he is holy and we're not 
Okay, so how can a wretched sinner like me enter into, once again, a relationship with the Almighty God that was broken back in the garden through the sin of Adam and Eve and then given to us throughout generations, right? That we have that in our nature, that we have been separated from God. So then if that's the case, how do we get reconciled back to God? Is that not the story of the whole Bible? When you see the beginning of the story, everything is perfect, right? Just the way God planned it. But then just as every other great story and epic story that we know about, right, that we read in great literature, something goes wrong. But then the whole rest of the story is about trying to get back to that perfection. So we see in the Old Testament, God's chosen people, right, trying to do what? Work their way back to God. And it's this vicious cycle, and we know it very well from our own lives, don't we? Trusting in God and believing in God and putting our faith in Him, and and then eventually things are going well, and we start to trust ourselves again, don't we? And God, I was sharing this with somebody the other day, God will use whatever it takes, because He loves us so much, to get our attention when we start to rely on our own strength. I've shared many times about my struggles with depression and anxiety. It started years ago. And how I truly believe that God used that as a thorn in my side, just like the Apostle Paul had, to get my attention to say, I want to use you for my kingdom, and I want you to be somebody that I can trust in to share the gospel and to represent me. Because I would take the name of Christian and say that I'm a Christian. But I believe that at the time, didn't realize that I was doing it in my own strength, see? Probably even saying that I was humble. Hey, I'm the most humble person I know. Isn't that kind of like an irony, right? <laughs> Thinking that I was humble and God saying, no, you're not. Just like a potter who wants to build a beautiful vase, if it's not turning out the way he wants, it can't be useful. He will push it back down. Break it down to its basic element to bring it back up to be the beautiful creation he wants it to be. God does that with us because of how much he loves us. And he'll use something, maybe it's a physical or mental illness, or it's um, maybe the loss of a job, or it's whatever it is, God will use it to bring you back to him, because that's how much he loves you, right? But how can we then be reconciled back to this holy God? Well, we know how the story ends, don't we? We know how it begins with perfection. But then the hero enters the story, doesn't he? And Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, brings once and for all, the offer, the free gift of salvation from God. It is not of our works, it says in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but it is simply a gift for those who believe. Look, it's like we're beggars, right? It's like we're beggars on the street and something is offered to them, free soup, free bread, whatever, a place to stay, a warm coat, and all they do is reach out to accept it. Is that working? No. It is a simple response to receive a gift. It's what we do at Christmas when people give us gifts. We reach out and say, thank you. And we accept that free gift, right? And then, being thankful, we rejoice. And that's what we do as Christians, and we worship. We did it today. In our response to God's goodness to us, we worship Him. So how does that righteousness and that righteous, perfect standard of God get met? It is simply this. That the righteousness of Christ, which is perfect, is taken in what we call imputed or put on us at that moment we believe. Because then our sinfulness 
is put on him. Do we not believe that the sin of the world was placed on him on the cross? And he had that weight to bear our sin and our shame. Again, we were the ones who deserved to be on the cross. He took it upon himself. But at that moment that he did, his perfect righteousness was placed on us. It doesn't mean that we live perfectly. But what it means is this, and this is the beauty of the gospel, that in God's eyes, we are considered righteous by nothing that we did on our own, but only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's why God can look at us as children and see us as righteous and we can enter into a relationship with him once again that was broken so many years ago, back in the beginning of this story, and that we don't have to work for it. There's no more sacrificial system. Jesus, once and for all, was the true lamb of God. The last sacrifice that needed to happen was done on our behalf, right? No work, no work on our part except to believe. And when we do, God's righteousness is put onto us. Our sin is put onto him. And therefore, God can see us as righteous and we can enter into his presence once again. And that's